Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm joined again by David Allen Green, a lawyer and blogger extraordinaire. We will be looking at the lockdown and the recent changes to the law. I should make clear at the beginning of this podcast that nothing we say is intended to suggest that people do not comply with the government guidance. Everybody should go to the government website and comply with the government guidance. We will be discussing the law, how it might be better, how we can improve it, um, and potential issues which might arise from it. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You'll gain problem solving, debating and advocacy skills through a range of experiential learning, extracurricular and professional development activities. If you want to support the Better Human podcast, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and consider giving a few pounds a month to the Patreon, which will allow this podcast, which is totally self-funded, to continue providing interesting and useful interviews on human rights law. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast again, David. The last episode we did was was about the lockdown regulations we're going to revisit that and also talk about a few of the legal challenges that are being brought or potentially being threatened in relation to the various different coronavirus laws but i i thought it'd be good to start given that we're recording this on wednesday the 13th of may and yesterday on tuesday the 12th the government updated the lockdown regulations for the second time since we last recorded. So should we just take stock about where we are with these regulations? Yes, these regulations uh, have now been amended twice. And for such a short-lived piece of legislation, it's already becoming fairly cumbersome. But we're now getting to amendments with double letters, which is never a good sign. It means that a document is being over-amended when you're having to resort to brackets AA and brackets AB. The regulations have had to be amended twice, partly because of policy developments, but also because they were botched in the first place and they're having to be continually, inverted commas, clarified. And they were botched in the first place and they've had to be clarified for two reasons. First of all, they were done at speed to try and put in place a legal basis for what is effectively public health guidance. And second of all, and this is still the case, they are not having any prior scrutiny before they're implemented. And the first lot, there was an argument that that was possibly appropriate because of the of, of the timing. But the last two rounds of amendments have don't need that. And indeed, Parliament is now sitting. There is no justification for the government firing off these amendments now on, a, on an emergency, no prior vote basis. Should we just dig into that a bit? Because it's a point I've been making um, pretty much to, uh, to nobody listening, <laughs> but I've been making it for a while, um, which, which is the, the governing legislation for these regulations. So the Public Health Control of Diseases Act 1984 is the Act of Parliament where these regulations come from, where the power to make the regulations come from are. And, and there's, been, there's been some questions about whether the regulations go further than the, than the Public Health Act allows. But the, one, of the, the, one of the mechanisms that you 
get under the Public Health Act is it's, it's called an emergency procedure. It's under Section 45R2. And it says the instrument, that's the regulations, may be made without a draft having been laid and approved um, if the... Uh, if the instrument contains a declaration that the person making it is of the opinion that by reason of urgency, it's necessary to make the order without a draft being so laid and approved. But that can't be just a formal requirement. You can't just say, oh, that's my opinion and then get the rubber stamp. That has to have some sort of meaning to it. He has to have a basis for taking that view. And I'm, it's difficult to see what basis he can now have for that view. Yeah, well, the, the original regulations were made, I think, on the Friday just before the Easter recess. And it was undoubtedly an emergency because the lockdown was introduced pretty much out of nowhere. I mean, the, the, I think it was on the Wednesday the Prime Minister made his announcement and then a couple of days later came through the regulations. So I think we, we can give the benefit of the doubt there. But well, it, you can, but they still managed to get the Coronavirus Act through in a separate piece of legislation. No, no fa fair enough. But, but the... The problem here is that, as you say, every time the regulations are introduced with no... Usually regulations would have a vote in Parliament and debate. Yeah. Um, without a vote and a debate, you, forget the, the any sort of insidious intentions. You're just losing the opportunity to get these right by virtue of, of a debate. Because it's just left to parliamentary council and rushed politicians who are dealing with a thousand different things to get it right. But this is the second go they've had, uh, they being the Home Office and the Department of Health. Just as a matter of background, although nominally the Secretary of State of Health is issuing these regulations, the stuff which goes to police powers are being done by a unit within the Home Office, which is un not unusual because they usually deal with police powers. The first time it came out, yes, you could give the benefit of the doubt, I suppose. Well, if there is a benefit of the doubt to be given, that would have been the point to give it. Uh, but now there's a pattern of behaviour of just rushing these leg this legislation out without proper scrutiny in a, in a very summary way. And the problem which is coming... The fundamental problem here, Adam, from, from my perspective, is that would be excusable if we were dealing with some sort of technical local legislation to deal with a public health hazard like for example the sort of swine's flu regulations you may have had under this legislation but for the broadest possible prohibitions which at a stroke turn normal social behavior into criminal behavior that cannot be satisfactory and for them to have done this now with two clarification amendment type things in a row that is now beginning to look like a real positive policy decision to keep on using this as a route for legislation. This can no longer be an accident just because of they had to do things quickly. They're doing, they're using this route for a purpose. Yeah, and, and the and the purpose is it, the less scrutiny, the better. And I don't, I don't really mean that in a this is a sort of power mad government. I think they probably feel like they're fighting so many battles on different fronts that if they can avoid scrutiny over on one front, then all the better. But the problem is it, it makes the regulations worse, inevitably. And it's only avoiding short-term scrutiny because, yes, they are sidestepping parliamentary votes, which they would need if it was primary legislation. And they're sidestepping the parliamentary and judicial supervision they would have if they were doing this under the Civil Contingencies Act. So they're, they're, they're managing to get rid of scrutiny in the short term 
But in the medium to longer term, if these regulations are knocked down by litigation, in part or in full, they are held to be ultra vires for legislation which empowered them, either to begin with or at some point since, then the whole lot crush it can crash down, which means there's been no legal basis, not only for a lot of the arrests, but for a lot of the things which have actually caused direct loss and damage. And so, yes, they are buying short-term convenience by avoiding litigation in one way, but I, I fear it's at the cost of actually harder, more brutal scrutiny if the whole of the regulations come crashing down after a well-aimed judicial review. Can I ask you a second general question? Um, so, so these regulations really do three things. They, they um, put into place the legal basis of closing certain businesses. They, yeah. they prohibit gatherings over, of more than two people not from the same household. And, yes. and and the third thing they do, probably the most controversial, Regulation Six, is they is they make it uh, unlawful to at the point where we recorded our last podcast, it was to leave your home, and that's been extended to being outside of your home um, without one of an, a number of listed reasonable excuses or some other reasonable excuse that isn't listed. Now, yes. what do you think these regulations are still serving a purpose? Do they should they still be in place during this lockdown? Regulation 6, the, the restrictions on movement, there is a big question mark now over whether it is actually of any use. Yes, there may well be a legal need for being able to disperse gatherings. I don't think even a libertarian or certainly a liberal would, would, would deny that there should be a special power to disperse gatherings at the moment. And there needs to be some legal basis for closing down businesses. But Regulation 6 isn't about gatherings. It isn't even about social distancing. The College of Police stroke CPS guidance, which was issued today, says bluntly, expressly, that there is no police power to force people to socially distance. There's none. What Regulation 6 is an attempt indirectly to ha have a social distancing power by actually initially saying you couldn't leave the house without certain reasonable excuses and now you can't be outside. But there's nothing in there about social distancing. And the question is, is now it's been the, the, the reasonable excuses have now been broadened almost to the point, if not beyond, of meaninglessness, whether it serves any purpose at all. We now have that the prohibition is, is subject to reasonable excuses so broad and vague as to be meaningless, if not beyond meaninglessness. And the problem there is, if that's the case, what purpose, what legal purpose, as opposed to some sort of symbolic purpose, does Regulation 6 now serve? I mean, th there is this new excuse, reasonable excuse in Regulation 6BA to visit a public open space for the purpose of open air recreation to promote their physical or mental health or emotional well-being. Now, that is quite that is quite a, quite a law. And with one member of another household. Just look at that clause. Look at look at it. Now, imagine it ended at the point recreation. So. The reasonable excuse was 
to visit a public open space for the purposes of open air recreation. What do the words after recreation add to that? I would say nothing. I would say that you are what you are doing is seeking to spell out what recreation means. And it's impo it's difficult to think of a recreation which is outside of the scope of one, two and three. So why are they bothering to overwrite it to this degree? This is sh shoddy legal drafting, in my view. And I am adopting an Alan Hansen rinse face here because it really is atrocious. Well, <laughs> we don't, it's difficult to know where to go with it because... Regulation six. If you look at where where we are since the last, so we last spoke quite soon after the regulations were brought in, and after that there have been a number of. Well, I think there were at the time a number of sort of overreach stories of the police using yeah. drones and um, searching people's shopping trolleys and stopping people buying Easter eggs. Uh, uh, no, we, we can't say that it was only trading standards that stopped the selling of Easter eggs. We will get many police officers on Twitter telling us off if we say that they stopped selling Easter eggs. Is that right? It was trading standards. I will. I apologise to all police officers, um, but it was police officers who were using drones and, and roadblocks and um, and threatening to look in people's shopping trolleys. Um, but but since then, I mean, one of the concerns that I've got is that there have been thousands of fines. I think the last time I saw the figures, it was about 6,000, but that was a week or two ago. Yeah. And, and presumably there's been a number of arrests and charges as well, because there must have been. You know, I, we haven't seen any figures at all. No breakdown of by ethnicity, no breakdown by area, no breakdown of how many disabled people are being prosecuted under these terms or being um, sanctioned. And remember, those fines are not, fines in the criminal sanction sense they are as you know penalties in lieu of criminal liability so it's an attempt to actually have a sanction without somebody getting a criminal record but those sanctions should only be inflicted if the person is satisfied that the offense is otherwise made out and i would be astonished if many police officers could be satisfied that given the non-exhaustive non list of reasonable excuses, as well as the vague wording of the reasonable excuses which are there, that they could be satisfied to that standard, so to inflict one of these fixed penalties. And, and to continue that point about the fixed penalties, the problem with the fixed penalties, so the fixed penalties were £60, they're now £100 or 50 yeah. if you pay within 14 days, but they can go up to £3,200 for um, for six consecutive offences, which is a huge amount of money. And the point about those fixed penalty notices is you can't appeal them. The only way you can yeah. challenge them is if you refuse to take them and you go to court to prove... And you have your day in court, which is always the phrase used by a certain sort of police officer. Uh, you can see the point of these penalties with, say, the anti-gathering provisions like other elsewhere in the regulations. That would sort of make sense because you've got a, a fairly concrete sort of situation there. There is a gathering, there's been a request to disperse, it's been refused, you, you can impose a fine. There's not a great deal there to actually puzzle anybody. But to, to try and get your mind around some of these regulation, uh, some of these reasonable excuses on this regulation, you are right. 
it would hurt those who are least able to actually be able to assert their rights with the police officers. There is a, there is news coverage at the moment of which we don't have a great deal of information, but it does seem uh, apparent that the the CPS have even tried to charge somebody under this regulation, even though they are of no fixed abode, and that was what was on the charge sheet, when expressly this regulation doesn't apply to homeless people. Just following on also about clarity. So we spoke last time about clarity and the fact that it's it's crucial, I mean, under human rights law, under the common law, you know, general rule of law, that criminal offences have to be clear enough that an individual can reasonably predict whether their behavior is going to contravene a criminal law um here we have i mean we, th- th- here's some language for you to visit a public open space for the purposes of open air recreation so we've already read that out but a public open space is defined later on as including land laid out as a public garden or used for the purpose of recreation by members of the public so that's any piece of land that's used by for the purpose of recreation by members of the public. Land which is open country def- as defined in law and land which is access land um, for the Country Rights of Way Act, Countryside and Rights of Way Act. And again, there, th- that's an in- include. So those are only examples. There is yeah. a non-exhaustive list. I mean, isn't that just anywhere? And if it's just anywhere outside of people's houses, why doesn't it just say that? Uh, yeah. You are right. It could almost be anywhere and it could easily be people's private property, which which makes a nonsense of this being a regulation which stops people, which is about people going out of their own houses. It's it's sort of intruding into other people's private property now. It, it, it is meaningless. And to actually say that the fines have been doubled, that is like gesture politics. It's increasing the fines to make it look like they're doing something. And there's no there's no evidence that the f- level of the fines have had any uh, impact whatsoever. So what we're having are higher higher and higher fines for less and less uh, scope of criminal uh, behaviour. We're probably going to end up in the point where we're going to have an infinite level of fine for an in, uh, a, a non-existent offence because it's just daft. It would have been a lot more sensible now just to have dropped Regulation Six. Just just have got rid of it and relied on or perhaps amend the non-gathering provision. So it was a sort of infor- a, a provision which in- ensured that people stayed there two metres apart. And if you had done that, you wouldn't need Regulation 6 at all. Some informed people like Lord Anderson even thought that they w- would probably get rid of Regulation 6 as a whole. What they've done is that they've made it unenforceable. There is no way... Uh, this can be properly applied by the police and not all by the courts, it seems to me. Well, well, I mean, one point is that the police, for the enforcement powers to bite, the police only need, it's only really in the opinion of the police officer um, whether the person is outside of their house without a reasonable excuse um, to give a, a fixed penalty notice. So in fact, they've always been, difficult to understand but very straightforward for the police to enforce because it's only in their opinion anyway um, but that it, it is sort of Alice in Wonderland territory isn't it when you start making it about a person's private life fundamentally what are they up to what what's in their mind what are they thinking um, but it's up but, but it's what's in the poli- policeman's mind um, as to whether there's going to be a penalty 
Yes, and you really have no real choice. If you do have a police officer who has taken that view that they're going to impose a penalty, there's very little you can do practically. And the police officer knows it. They can just shrug and know that that you are not going to risk your day in court to, 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 to oppose it. But then the question is, is, what is the purpose of that penalty? This is about public health, not public order. As long as you are maintaining social distancing... It makes no difference uh, to, to the public health point where the where the encounter with the police officer happens. It's, it's just a daft piece of legislation where the government and the government's lawyers, sadly, have taken the decision to make the legislation dafter rather than addressing it and getting put, putting it on a proper basis in the first place. Should we just explore that point? Because it's one that you made in the first podcast, and I think it's a really good one. It's one that I've picked up on in, in a couple of articles as well that these are public health powers and the and anybody enforcing them is is in in the capacity as a public health officer so they're not it's not public order it's not for the reason of you know people getting on with each other better or preventing crime it's all about preventing the spread of this disease so if you look through that lens at the different aspects well shutting down businesses i think we can see why we might disagree with particular businesses or particular timing, but you can see why that needs to be in, enforceable by the police. Otherwise, it can become a mess. Gatherings, I think, is is also pretty straightforward because however difficult the evidence on coronavirus is, it's obvious that close people gathering closely together. I mean, actually, particularly indoors rather than outdoors, which raises a question is it spread is, is a way of spreading the the virus so you can kind of see that although david mead's made the point and um, professor david mead that if there's any meaning from gathering it must be people less than two meters apart together because if they're not two meters if they're more than two meters apart maybe more than three they're not there's no public health risk or very very low public health risk but but then the, the question about regulation six that i've been wondering is is the reason that this is stayed on the statute books because it's serving a purpose of basically making it less likely people will leave their houses? It's I don't want to say frightening, but it's it's chilling people into because of its width and because of its unclearness, if that's a word, to it's chilling people for, to to not go out because they just don't know and they're confused. It's to send a signal, and that is often. The worst purpose of legislation. If you want to send a message, use a carrier pigeon. The the whole purpose of law is so it is enforceable and that it can be understood by those who are in the position to enforce it, either the police or the courts or whatever emanation of the state. But you, you know where you are, what your position is, especially with criminal law. On the face of it, somebody could gain a criminal record which would mar the rest of their life under this legislation uh, just by doing normal social behaviour which in no way impacted upon so uh, public health. It just takes one daft police officer and one daft CPS uh, decision maker to have somebody turn up in court and then have a daft magistrate and this is all too plausible. It's difficult to see from a legal point of view, why Regulation 6 is, 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 is there, 
for the purposes you suggest. It isn't serving any direct public health purpose. Not directly. It does indirectly, but not directly. But as long as social distancing is kept and as long as gatherings can be dispersed, that should be the point of this legislation. Not this widest possible prohibition on normal social activity. Because the you can send a signal with, with a law, um, but if you're using it to that, if it's so blunt, the effect, then it's bound to have a whole load of unintended or, you know, recklessly, um, you know, produced effects, which, you know, such as preventing autistic people from leaving the house because that, you know, as I've heard, because they're so worried about being coming into contact with a police officer who won't understand how their disability affects them, but they need exercise lots and lots of day. You know, all, all those kind of things. It, it is, it's such a difficult balance. And I, I do sympathise with the government to an extent, but it does seem here that we're getting into sort of quite dangerous territory as these regulations continue to expand and, you know, have barnacles attached to them and have, you know, BA and BAC and BA23, you know, all of that. Or if... This has to be the way forward. If those with the power to make law want this to be the way forward, then it should now be done by Parliament on a normal basis where MPs vote on these prohibitions and the scope of these prohibitions. But to actually have this gesture-based unsatisfactory approach on an emergency basis, I think is 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 so illiberal and misconceived that it's difficult to believe it is still seriously being being promoted by the government as an approach. I think that's an excellent point to uh, move on from that topic because I think that's I entirely agree, and it's a good place to um, jump into some of the legal challenges. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So the, the, the first big legal challenge, which was mooted, and I'm not sure what stage it's at yet. I don't know whether it's been issued yet, um, but there was a pre-action letter, was um, the challenge to the overall lockdown, saying it was disproportionate. Um, and there was a pre-action letter, I think, drafted by um, Francis Hall, Barrister Francis Hall, um, which effectively said the effect on businesses the effect on individuals is so extreme that it doesn't eat this doesn't even fall within the discretion the wide discretion given to governments in in times of national crisis and public health emergencies um what do you think is going to happen in these kind of challenges i noticed one in ireland's been dismissed um as unarguable but i haven't read the i haven't read the um the pleadings or, or the judgment i, I, I think I I don't I don't know how far the Francis Hall Red Lake Bell 
letter has gone on on current information there is a letter i've not seen any reply uh, and i don't know if any claim has actually been formally issued but it's difficult to see how any of these immediate uh claims will will get very far because the high court will be reluctant to say the least uh, to undermine the legal basis of government action in a in 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 an emergency situation, uh, even if there are good solid legal arguments, you would just not see the courts wanting to to intervene, at least not in the short to medium term. What I suspect may happen in the medium to longer term is that once the emergency has come and gone. But people's rights, which were interfered with, and the losses and damages which have been sustained, uh, which were which had this as its legal basis, will have a very strong interest in actually opening up whether it had been legal in the first place. And so, once the emergency has gone. And the government can no longer say, oh, we need this emergency legislation. There are still going to be a lot of people in search of a remedy. And when there are people in search of a remedy, you do get some very, very good lawyers and you do get some very strong arguments put forward. And I don't actually think these regulations are going to be legally robust enough to, to meet those challenges, especially if, if as we suspect, the Secretary of State has not individually looked at these regulations in any of these reviews, but has actually just approved them en masse without any anxious scrutiny whatsoever. I, I was just looking at the um, the crowd justice page for the, the lockdown challenge and the the last update, which was last week, was that the government have asked for more time to respond. Um, I think they only gave them a week. So the... I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that the I'd be very surprised if the court, um, if any court, whether the domestic or the European Court of Human Rights, rules that the proportionality assessment um, conducted by the government by any government, um, you know, within reason in this in this crisis was unlawful, because every government's been struggling with you know listening to which scientists do they listen to what's the best outcome you know how to stop thousands more people dying it's just an incredibly difficult situation but you're right the when it comes to individuals and individual enforcement um, and particular situations it's going to be there'll be there'll be litigation for years and years and years i would have thought yeah. because businesses that collapsed people ended up in prison people lost jobs um, people ended up in deten mental health detention, all sorts of various if I was still, If I was still versions. a government lawyer uh, and I had been in any way involved on this, I would have said uh, to the senior officials or to the minister that you don't only need a legal instrument to make things easy in the short term. You need to have a legal instrument in place which will be robust enough to to see to address any legal challenges in the medium to longer term, especially if the legal instrument is going to fundamentally interfere with people's rights or 
cause substantial loss and damage. And this does both. And I just think that the claims which one can have sympathy with in the me in the short term won't get traction because the courts, whilst it is happen whilst the vi virus is happening, will not want to actually undermine the government's legal regime. But it, the legal test is not going to go away after that. And that's only one form of scrutiny, as you know, the scrutiny in the courts and the scrutiny in the parliament. But as you know, as, as a specialist inquiry lawyer, there's going to have to be a reckoning bro more broad than just a legal case to look at this in a way which not even parliament can look at. There, there will need to be a fundamental public inquiry or group of public inquiries in, in into this well uh, let's look at that from the perspective of, the, of another legal challenge that's been brought that's being threatened um so just to explain to people listening the um civil procedure rules require that any party that's trying to thinking considering litigation before they actually go and issue the claim at court they they go through something called the pre-action procedure which is why you often see when people are crowdfunding the um the it's reported that a claim is being a legal case is being threatened or um the process has been begun but what's happening is that is they're doing this pre-action letter process and they send a letter and then 14 days later they get one back and it there's another um letter which I think um, is a good law project um, case involving Paul Bowen QC, which is to challenge the government's refusal or attempting to get them to agree to um, hold a Inquiries Act inquiry, so a judge-led public inquiry into the failure to provide personal protective equipment or the alleged failure um, for medical nursing and other care staff. And that comes under the Human Rights Act. So Article 2, the right to life, yep. has an investigative obligation which requires the state to effectively investigate um, potential state culpability in yes. deaths. And, and, and clearly, there, if there's been a failure to provide personal protective equipment by the NHS mm. or care homes, there is a potential fa state failure there. So it's going to have to be investigated either by inquests Invest, which is a sort of standard investigation into death. But I think that, that they say rightly that it wouldn't make sense for lots of coroners all over the country to look at this systemic issue. And the separately. coroners have been told not to by the chief coroner. The chief yeah. coroner has, has said that you sh coroners should be looking at the immediate causes of death rather than to the systemic failures, which I can see why the chief coroner says from a resource point of view, because the coroner system is under-resourced. And it was under-resourced before this uh, crisis. But as as you know, uh, and some of your listeners will know, case law shows that if there is not an inquiry announced, then all criminal proceedings, then the Article 2 duty should be on the coroner to be able to look into the circumstances of these of these deaths, which may be from state culpability. There is this wider question, isn't there, about how are we going to look back and fairly analyse what's happened um, to, I guess, first of all, to identify where mistakes were made and secondly, to learn lessons for the next time this is going to happen? Oh, 
yes, Viva, learnt lessons by which all the current group of politicians and officials will have moved on. If you take two well-known examples, there's, there's the Hillsborough inquiry into, in, into the tragedy of the 96 who died there. Well, we now have 30,000 who have died. So multiply 96 to you get to 30,000 and you will get the scale of what a Article 2 inquest should have to cover. But not only are you going to have to look at the sort of immediate or circumstances of the death, you're going to have to have an inquiry which also is like Chilcot into the central government policy failures, which led to the situation where there were PPE failures, there were care home failures, there were ventilator fa supply failures. This, the inquiry will have to address both policy and also the Article 2 circumstances of, of state culpability. So it's it, it's like Hillsborough to a certain factor times by Chilcot. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it really is unprecedented. I mean, look, I, I, I acted in, I've acted in a, a number of public inquiries, but the closest I think to this was the, the Mid-Staffordshire inquiry. And there there were, there were, it's, it was said there were at least a few hundred excess deaths because of um, because of negligence or because of the bad running of, of that particular hospital in Stafford, and that was an enormous scandal. I mean, there were two public in there were two inquiries. There was one which looked at the facts and one which looked at the systems, and I was in the second one. Um, and it was a year long inquiry. It was extremely complex. You know, there was in actual fact there was there was similar kinds of arguments or a sort of preview of the arguments that are happening now you know what is the how do you identify an excess death you know can you what statistical model do you use and it was actually there was a lot of argument over that and you can imagine why because some statistician will say well it's 100 and some will say it's 500 and here we'll have the same thing but i would expect my, my having acted in a lot of these kind of issues the government will will push very hard for no inquiry, um, but realistically, we'll, we'll we'll hope it's going to be some sort of Chilcot style parliamentary, or, or you know a, a non inquiries act inquiry where there's no lawyers cross examining the prime minister, and it's all a bit more in parliament, a bit more cosy. Although you know it might still come to a hard outcome for them, and they'll push against a public inquiry, and, and I think they'll also push very hard against starting any kind of inquiry until the end of the epidemic, which could be at least another year, could be longer. Um, because, and, and I think there is a fair argument that until you get to the end, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have lawyers um, effectively raking over what is still happening because it can complicate the current response but I, I know there are arguments against that i don't know well, what do you think about that about I, the... I think if you're talking about lawyers quote raking things over then you're, you're you're framing the lawyer's role in such a pejorative way that everybody would just nod along with the sentiment you're expressing yeah fair enough i take that a lot of inquiries come down to findings about what those at the time should have done at the time uh we are still now at the time. We are still now in a situation where decisions could be made or unmade, which could lead to people's lives. So the question is, is what could be done now 
to 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 improve the information available and it would seem to me there is an argument to allow coroners to properly look at the circumstances of deaths which seem to be flowing from system failures now because now is the time where we can feed the information into the ongoing decision making processes yes it would be a burden yes we would certainly not want to have any sort of procedural uh, devices which slowed things down. But procedure should not be the, the, the master here. What needs, to, what needs to be the master is somebody who is able to find out the situation and make recommendations when those recommend, recommendations can still work. And so that is why I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about this idea that coroners should not be looking into all the circumstances of the deaths they are currently looking at. Yeah, well, I I think that's a fair point and a very and a fair criticism of the way I framed it. Um, and, and I'll and I'll answer my own point by saying that you know I'm I'm working at the moment um, as specialist advisor to the Joint Committee on Human Rights inquiry into COVID, the government response into COVID nineteen, and there's some brilliant work being done, and it's being done you know li effectively live. I mean, we've so for example, the just to take the contact tracing app, which is just one of the issues the committee's looked at. But they had an evidence session, I think, at the beginning of last week with Matthew Gould, um, the head of the NHSX, uh, the Information Commissioner, a number of other experts, produced a report within a couple of days and produced a draft bill, which I fed into by uh, the end of last week. And that is all live scrutiny. And it's being, you know, the responses that the government are providing are have been pretty constructive, a bit bland, but, but, but pretty constructive. So I, I think there is there is an argument for that sort of constructive engagement through an inquiry process. But 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 once it gets very hostile and, and, and lawyer driven, not hostile, once it gets very adversarial, I do think there is, you know, even leaving aside the, the negative framing, there, there is a question about, about how useful it is. A coroner's inquiry is, is, is coroner-driven. That, that's correct. And absolutely correct, although it does involve lawyers. It can involve lawyers, and, and, and like you, I've, I've acted before coroners. But we already have people in place, mainly with medical training, who are in a position to investigate of the circumstances of these deaths in a very unloyally way. And they're called coroners. And that is why I think they should be allowed to investigate the deaths properly, especially if there's no public inquiry yet. Yeah, I mean, I think... That I'm putting together some thoughts on this for... I'm, I'm working on a, a documentary on the role of the coroner's system in all this. So hen hence my particular interest in, in trying to work out whether they are part of the solution or whether they, are, they would actually cause problems if they were able to investigate things at the moment well i mean that sounds very really interesting um and valuable i mean what, one thing i would say from my experience of coroners compared to when i started 10 years ago appearing at coroner's inquest that there's a that you'll find a lot more coroners are now lawyers than they are doctors than, and, and certainly that balance has changed um mm -hmm. and, and i think also the process has become in more high-profile situations, has become quite trial-like. Although, still with the the differences that the coroner is the investigative judge, um, the sort of you know, and it's a quite different. They, they take it very very seriously, and they and they have this power to make recommendations 
to through a letter to the Secretary of State, which then gets published and then has to be acted on. Um, well, at least has to be responded to. And I think I, I agree that, that that process should be the route one into scrutinising this first wave of coronavirus. Because we can think of it in waves, can't we? Because clearly this first wave is, is diminishing now. And we may well have a second wave shortly after, maybe in the autumn, maybe next year. So there is a there is potentially a time period within which those investigations really can operate and have a useful purpose in, in, in um, the phrase you don't like, in, the, in identifying lessons learned or lessons to learn. The reason I don't like that phrase, it's not because I don't like the idea of lessons being learned, but often it's a substitute for anything ever ha useful happening because they know that if they can pad it out long enough, they can get to the lesson learned stage and actually have a home run and get out of any culpability whatsoever. They can just look sorrowful and stare at the TV and say, oh, we've learned out, we've, lessons have been learned. But in fact, it's just a sort of rite of passage of an evasive procedure. Yeah, and, um, and, the, and what really should be saying is we made mistakes and we um, and and we are sorry. Yeah, but I, the legal process is not necessarily something which uh, should be seen as an encumbrance, uh, as, as an inconvenience at the moment. A properly managed investigatory process at the moment would be very useful. It shouldn't be just all cancelled because uh, lawyers. It may well be that things could be identified. Uh, problems could be analysed, models and and systems could be looked at carefully with anxious scrutiny and improved now. So thank you for arguing me out of of, of a job <laughs> <laughs> in, in future public inquiries. But the um, look the, the, the to to sum up where we are now. Where do you think? Where would you like to to see the regulations? that we have um, and petite, and really the lockdown law generally go next where, where, as this thing gets reduced down as it probably will over the coming weeks what do you think the i think these attempts to keep finding fine tuning the law as if it's some sort of airplane coming into land a little bit left a little bit right up or down it's it's creating immense uncertainty the police can police on the basis of settled law people can moderate and regulate their behaviour on the basis of settled law. When you've got a statutory instrument which is less than two months old, which is so heavily amended that it looks like some sort of obscure tax code, where the, the reasonable excuses have been amended substantially twice, you cannot police on the basis of that and although i am often critical of the police it is fair to say they can only be expected to police on the basis of things which are consistent and settled so keep fine-tuning the law as if it's some way of actually fine-tuning the disease and its spread in society i think is utterly misconceived the law should become settled and those processes which allow the law to find out what has actually gone wrong and identify problems with systems, they should be allowed to proceed. So that, that's where I think we are on, on, on coronavirus and, and, and use of, of the law. I mean, we, we haven't even spoken about the fact that the regulations have become quite different in different parts of the UK. In Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland have quite significantly different regulations to England. 
And it doesn't seem like that's related particularly to the difference in coronavirus, or that maybe to it to an extent. It just seems like the different devolved legislations have taken different routes. And that seems well, to that, add that, to the confusion. That doesn't it? Our next discussion, then, Adam. Yeah. So next time we'll do the position in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And um, thanks so much, David, for coming on again. And uh, it's keep, an absolute pleasure, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. Keep safe and well, and um, I'm sure we can do an update to this next time. We'll be talking about provision one A B Roman numeral two B. Good to speak to David. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you very much to my guest, David Allen Green. You can follow him on Twitter at David Allen Green. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You'll gain problem-solving, debating and advocacy skills through a range of experiential learning, extracurricular and professional development activities. If you want to support the Better Human podcast, which is totally self-funded, you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and a few pounds a month from a couple of hundred people would make this podcast sustainable. Thanks so much. I'm Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human podcast. See you next time. Better Human.